My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. Today's episode is another Mechanics to Steal episode, and today we are going to be covering Blades in the Dark. So if you are interested in heist games, this is the episode for you. We've got a lot of fun stuff that you can steal today. I'm going to start off talking a little bit about what Blades in the Dark is, and a little bit of how to play, how the basic mechanics work, and then we're going to get into the things that you can really start to steal, which is clocks, We're going to talk about the stress and flashback mechanics, talk a little bit about how harm works in Blades in the Dark, and then we'll finish up talking about fortune rolls. Before we jump into the episode, I want to give a quick shout out to everyone who has made this podcast possible. I have been doing this podcast now for a little over a year. We are just about on 52 episodes, which is amazing. First and foremost, I want to thank my guest stars that have been coming on and uh, putting themselves through the interview process. I know that's not always an easy thing for people to do, and it's been a lot of fun. I've met and gotten to interact with a lot of great people on the podcast. Second, I would like to thank the listeners, you guys, for listening to the podcast, for interacting with me on Twitter and on the Discord server. I've gotten to play a couple of games with people from the server, and I've gotten to run a couple games or sessions with people from the server, and it's been a lot of fun, and it's been just a blast. And thirdly, I'd like to thank my wife and my daughter for allowing me to spend an hour or two each week interviewing random strangers on the internet. As I mentioned, uh, this podcast has been going on just a little bit over a year. Um, And for those of you who don't know, I actually started this podcast somewhat um, as a response to finding out that we were going to lose our son. And not trying to get too dark here, um, but the day that this episode releases, the 27th, will have been one year um, since that happened. Uh, And so just this podcast... It has just been a really great way and a really great outlet for me to uh, to just help me get through some of the more difficult days and having something fun and uplifting to look forward to and getting to meet and interact with a lot of really great people. And for that, I am just very, very thankful uh, that everybody has been here and has supported me just, just through listening and talking and interacting with me. So... With that, just one more really huge thank you to everyone, and then let's jump into this episode, and I hope you enjoy. So what is Blades in the Dark? Blades in the Dark is a tabletop role-playing game by John Harper. It's set in kind of a dark, haunted, industrial setting. Think of the Dishonored video games if you've played them. Kind of a steampunky, Victorian, industrial, uh, and then there's this... Uh, It's kind of dark magic and occult and ghosts and spirits and that sort of a thing. Players will control members of a crew that will go out and do heists and smuggling runs and assassinations and different kind of dark underbelly jobs like that. It's not a nice place. It's a very kind of seedy underworld. Now I'm going to briefly touch on some of the mechanics of the game since the Blades in the Dark games are based on the Powered by the Apocalypse 
engine kind of as inspiration. Uh, it has different dice mechanics, so I'm going to talk about that. And I'm not going to go super in-depth on how everything in the game works. It's just going to be kind of a high level. How do you make rolls? How do you play the game? What does the back and forth look like? So let's start out with kind of the basic thing in any RPG and figuring out what the main type of role that you'll be making in the game. And in Blades in the Dark, that is called the action role. And basically, the player states what they're going to do, what their goal of the action is, and then they get to choose their action rating, which is essentially they have a list of different skills that they'll have a number of points in, typically uh, anywhere from zero to five. So this is a little bit different in that the player actually says, I'm going to use this skill, and we'll talk about that uh, in a little bit. And the GM then sets the position for the role and the effect level for the role. We'll go into that a little bit more in a second. And then you add in any bonus dice. Um, there's a couple ways that you can get extra dice for your rolls. And all of these dice are D6s, so keep that in mind. You don't need any other fancy, you know, 20-sided dice or 10-sided dice or 12-sided dice. This is just a D6 dice pool. And once you've gathered up all of these things and all of your, your dice, you're ready to roll, you make the roll, and we have a tiered success system just like the Powered by the Apocalypse games. And so when you roll this dice pool, you are only looking at the highest dice rolled. So you said, say you rolled five dice, you only care about the highest number that you get, uh, roll. And a one to three, is a failure. It's a complete miss. Bad things happen. On a four to five, that is your partial success. So you accomplish your goal, but there is still some complication that comes out of it. And then a six is a complete success. So you get what you're after. You're good to go. Now there is also a chance for a critical success, and that happens if you roll multiple sixes on a roll. And it should be noted that you can't roll a critical if you are only rolling one dice, or if you had an action rating of zero or less. In the case that you have an action rating of zero or less, you roll two dice and you take the worst one, and you can't take uh, a critical because you, you're only taking you know the worst dice, the other ones don't count. So um, it's kind of like the disadvantage mechanic a little bit, um, but that's only in the case that you have zero or less dice. Typically that's not the case. Players tend to try to choose action ratings that are going to give them the most dice to accomplish the task, but it does come up occasionally uh, that you will be rolling with an action rating of zero. So now you know about the kind of core rolling mechanic. Um, that'll tell you a lot about the system and just how to play it in general. There's obviously a lot of other mechanics that go with Blades in the Dark's system, but that is kind of the core piece of it. And that's where you get Forged in the Dark games or FITD games. And they're using that core rolling mechanic. And basically all you have to have is some type of an action rating to say how many dice you're rolling, and then you just plug that into this dice rolling mechanic and you're good to go. Uh, as a little plug on the Dungeon Masters Toolkit website, I actually put together a Forged in the Dark dice roller based on the dice assets from the Wicked Ones game um, from Ben Nielsen. I interviewed him, uh, he was one of the first people that I interviewed actually 
Um, and his game, Wicked Ones, is a Forged in the Dark game. And his uh, digital dice assets that he has um, are color-coded. So 1 through 3 are gray, four, uh, 4 and 5 are blue, and then 6s are red. So it makes it really easy to read the dice uh, when you roll them because you're basically just looking at the color. You almost don't even care about what the number is on the dice. Uh, and so I have a dice roller out there. If you want to play around with it, you can just click a button from 0 to 10, and it'll roll that many dice, and it will tell you what the outcome is, and you can see the dice as they get rolled there as well. And I'm sure there are plenty of other bots uh, and online systems that will let you roll Forged in the Dark style dice. So one of the main things I'm going to actually say about this dice system is this may actually be one of my favorite systems. Um, for a couple of reasons, I love dice pool games. I started with the Star Wars RPG games, which are dice pool based. Um, and they also had that kind of partial success mechanic. Uh, the Forged in the Dark system is much easier to read, grasp, and um, it's, it's just overall easier to, to get a grip on because you're dealing with less stuff uh, and you're, you don't have to like cancel out all these different dice results. You just are looking at the highest number that you rolled and you're good to go. So as far as uh, rolling the dice, reading everything, it's super fast, it's super fluid. You still get partial success mechanics, which I really enjoy. Um, it's also one of the things I love about the Powered by the Apocalypse games. Uh, so it has that going for it and it's just really, really fast. And I think that that can be seen uh, elsewhere because there are lots of other games that use this Forged in the Dark system. Um, so I think it's a good thing if you have a RPG idea that you want to do. Uh, one of the best ways to get it in more hands is to use a system that people already know. And Forged in the Dark is one of those systems that is fairly widely used um, in the tabletop. RPG space. So it's if you have a setting and you want to plug in and you don't want to mess with, you know, wonky mechanics and, and you want to get your adoption rate up, definitely pick a system that helps push that forward. And Forged in the Dark could be that system for you. Now let's talk a little bit about the players being able to choose which action rating they use or which stat they use, essentially. Um, that's very different from many RPGs, because in most cases, uh, you'll do something and the DM will say, give me you know, a perception roll or a nature check or something, right? And the DM is deciding what skills that they have to use versus the player. So in this game, it's flipped around a little bit. The player gets to choose, and all of the uh, stats or the action ratings, the attributes, um, and I'll, I'll read through, there's 12 of them, um, they all have some overlap. So attune, command, consort, finesse, hunt, prowl, skirmish, study, survey, sway, tinker, and wreck. Um, and they are uh, kind of separated into three groups um, under insight, prowess, and resolve, um, which also kind of have their own ratings associated with them as well. Um, but one of the neat things is in the book, or even if you just go to their website, there's a bladesinthedark.com. They actually have the uh, source reference document, SRD, out there, or system reference document. So you can see all of the rules just without even buying anything. Um, and, and that's actually what I'm looking at right now. And in all of the 
action, uh, all of these attributes, it'll say, you know, hunt is when you carefully track uh, a target to discover its location. And then it also says, like, you might use it to attack with pre precision when shooting from a distance, or you could try to bring your guns to bear in melee, but skirmishing might be better. In every case, it gives you kind of a, an overlapping skill that might be better. Like for skirmish, uh, you could get into a duel, uh, but sometimes finesse might be better, or sometimes wreck might be better, right? So there's a lot of overlap between these skills, which is kind of why uh, Blades in the Dark lets you, or lets the player, pick which one they want to use. And picking um, some, somewhat changes the outcome that the DM will set in the, that future stage there. So for example, you could try to skirmish with somebody, but maybe your wreck is higher, right? And so you, you decide you want to roll with wreck. Well, if you rolled with skirmish, your effect level and your kind of positioning might change. And, and the outcome of a skirmish might be, you know, just whether or not you can kind of best them in combat. But if you wreck them, uh, you maybe run the risk of, you know, collateral damage or something like that, right? So depending on kind of which action you pick is going to affect your outcomes. And that is it's a good thing. And it can be a bad thing. It's something that the DM can play with to kind of differentiate and up, uh, change the consequences. If the players are trying to do something stealthy and you go to wreck something, you run the risk of, of causing a lot of noise and, and not being very helpful to the fact that you're trying to be stealthy. So you really got to think about what you want to use. Let's quick talk about position and effect. Uh, so this is what the DM or the GM gets to set. Uh, when a player says that they're going to make a roll. And this is where a lot of the um, control over the rolls comes into play for the game master. Um, and it, it doesn't, it didn't quite click with me right away. So um, there's position and effect. So there's three positions, controlled, risky, and desperate. Risky is kind of your like default one. That's kind of right in the middle. And then you have effect, which is limited, standard, or greater. So again, standard being the default. So any given action is going to be kind of by default a risky standard uh, action. But you can change that. So we talked about maybe you're shooting at somebody and you're behind cover. That would probably put your position to be controlled, but the effect is probably the same. It's probably still standard effect. Uh, and then let's say um, you have some sort of a distraction lined up for the person that you're trying to shoot at, right? Then maybe your effect would go to greater. So you, <clears throat> you can kind of change this, these two dials to kind of get what you want. And as players, you should be trying to, to change these things because the amount of damage and stuff that you end up taking, you know, if things go sideways, um, can be reduced and in all these things. If, uh, you can also get into a situation where you might have like a desperate position, but you have a great effect. This is kind of like your last man standing or charge. Like I'm just I'm just gonna rush out and try to do the thing super fast. And if if I succeed, it's gonna be great. And if I fail, 
that was a very desperate position and bad things are going to happen. So this is kind of the scale that you can tilt things um, as to, you know, how do you set up before an attack to do like an ambush or how do you get out of things, right? You kind of as a player want to be thinking about how can I set myself up for these things, but the GM gets to control this. Um, now, as far as mechanics to steal go, I think it would be a decent idea for any game to kind of think about some of these things and think about just because maybe doing a check in, say, D&D, like jumping over a cliff, just because, you know, that's the same role as it would be to, like, craft an item, you could think about, and I think people generally... Uh, kind of intuitively think about these as very different roles, right? Like if you're crafting an item and you know in your castle, then that's going to be like a controlled position and either standard or you know greater effect if you're using tools and whatever. But if you're trying to run over uh, and jump over a crit, uh, cliff, that's probably more on the risky, desperate side of things. And um, depending on where they're at, they could have standard or uh, even limited um, effect. So it kind of just depends. And I think intuitively, as DMs, we do a little bit of this. But seeing it kind of codified into a system can help us to think about it a little bit more and maybe bring some of that to our other games. And you don't have to do this for every single role in like a D&D game, but it's good to just kind of understand there are some levers that we can pull here as DMs and just as a new way to think about it. The next thing I want to talk about is stress. So in Blades in the Dark, stress and trauma actually go together, but the main thing that I want to take a look at is the stress portion. So essentially each character has a stress tracker. I think it's like seven uh, markers on it, and different actions uh, will generate stress. And essentially once you have filled your stress box up, you have to mark a trauma, you suffer a trauma, and then you go into some other things there that happen. They're, um, they're basically permanent conditions, uh, and it's, it's not good for you, um, because when you mark all of them, then you basically uh, can't go out and adventure anymore. It's kind of a limit on how much stuff that they can do. Um, but there's a, a couple different ways that stress can help a character out. So you can push yourself so you burn two stress or you take two stress essentially um, and then you can get an extra dice added to your roll or you can increase the level of the effect of whatever it is you're trying to do um, or you can even take an action while you're incapacitated. So there are ways to push yourself to get more dice like we talked about, right? Um, and the stress also comes into play during resistance roll. So resistance is kind of how you deal with uh, so you're going to take a bunch of damage, you can try to resist the damage and reduce how much damage you take, uh, but you basically suffer kind of the, the remainder in stress um, just instead of physical harm, right? So there's uh, that's kind of where some of that comes from. Um, and then the other thing that stress can be spent on is flashbacks. Flashbacks are a great way to make a game or a session feel like a heist, okay? So, and Blades in the Dark is really good at just making a game session feel like you're in a heist movie, right? 
And part of the way that they do that is with flashbacks. So one of the things that you can spend stress on, and I don't remember how much it is and I can't find it in the documentation right now. I think it's two. I think you can spend two or three, maybe depending on how intense of a flashback you have. Um, but you can, you can spend stress to perform flashbacks to somewhat circumvent or have an opportunity to change a possible outcome of a scene. So, and this is very heist movie style, right? So your characters roll up to this building. Let's just say it's a bank that they're going to rob. And there's a guard outside uh, patrolling, right? And part of what makes heist movies so um, fun is they, they tend to be like really fluid and the scenes just play out really quickly. Um, and in a tabletop RPG, sometimes that's it's really hard to plan absolutely everything on the player's side and then go in and do things kind of without a hitch, right? So flashbacks let the players smooth over some of those uh, parts. So they roll up the bank. There's a guard here, right? And the players maybe say, I want to, you know, maybe we should have uh, bribed this guard or maybe we knew this guard or something. So what they can do is they can spend some stress. They have a flashback and you, you go back in time to another scene. You basically start a new scene in this flashback. And then you can, you can play out this new flashback scene uh, to see what happens. Uh, so maybe the players approach the guard and give him a bribe to see if they can convince him to either kind of not be in this part of the, or, you know, at this part of the bank uh, when they're coming around tonight. Or maybe they want to get information about um, security systems or stuff inside the bank or whatever. Right, And depending on how that scene plays out is going to depend on what's actually happening now in uh, kind of the current timeline that they're in, right? So let's say they play it out. They have a successful bribe attempt on this guard. And so he says, yep, I'll take your money. I am going to, you know, I'll just be, I'll, I'll be somewhere. I'll be around. I'll be at my post. But I'm just not going to pay attention. I might even leave the back door cracked open for you, right? So this, this flashback went over really well. Uh, so then we came come back to the present day, and um, we kind of uh, retroactively revert that scene a little bit to say, okay, he held up his end of the deal. Uh, you were successful in this flashback. He's not here. And, and as you approach the bank, there's a back door here, and you can see that it's been cracked open a little bit, and there's a little stone that is uh, stuck there. And so you kind of progress that part of the plot, right? So you've, you've bypassed a piece of the puzzle, a piece of this heist puzzle, but you it cost you something, it cost you stress, uh, and you still had to play out a scene in regards to how you got around this this little uh, obstacle. Uh, so it's not like a freebie, I'm just going to flash back and just let everybody lets me in. You still have to, to role play it out. Um, but it lets your players have creative solutions to problems that they're the uh, the players themselves aren't necessarily prepared to handle. Uh, but the characters being you know, experienced uh, veteran, you know, underworld dogs, uh, they're, they're, they know what they're doing. The characters know what they're doing, even if the players playing them don't. Um, and so having these flashbacks 
allows the players to kind of feel like they're experts in this and they still get to play through those scenarios now let's say that the roles went poorly in that flashback scene and the uh the guard didn't fall for it and and now you've got this other situation right now the guard alerts the rest of his guards and the establishment that hey there's going to be a heist at this date and time and they show up they see the guard walking and security has been doubled right so it's not always spend some stress to make the situation disappear it could go poorly and make the situation worse so just think of different ways uh, that that can happen and by giving uh, players especially in a heist type game either some type of currency or say like everybody in the party gets one flashback during the heist or during the session uh, that they can use at any time go for it right giving them flashbacks that they can use um, is going to help to let them solve problems in a creative way. All right, now let's talk about one of the most stealable ideas from Blades in the Dark, and that is clocks. So these are called progress clocks. It's really simple. You can port this directly into any game you're playing. Essentially, a progress clock is just a circle that is divided into segments. So you draw a circle, and you draw a line you know, through the center halfway, and then you split it the other way halfway. So now you've got a uh, circle with four you know, segments of the circle, right? And you can even split these uh, more. You can draw uh, three lines through it, so now you've got a six-segment clock. You can draw four lines through it, and now you've got an eight-segment clock. These are really just progress trackers, but they're just really easy to draw a circle and then you know divide it up by drawing some lines, right? And essentially, what the, these clocks can be used to represent a lot of different things. Um, I mean, really, what you're doing is whenever progress is made towards a clock or something happens that would theoretically advance the clock, you just fill in one of the segments on the box and you continue on. And when that box fills up, the thing happens something you know the ritual is completed the guards are alerted and there can be actions that could be done by the players or by npcs or something even the enemy to uh, either add more time to the clocks fill in more segments or to pull segments off of the clocks and slow them down so uh, let's take a look at a couple different examples of what these could be um, there's a common one that you use for stealth missions, which is to say, you know, any failed role doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, you, you, this one person failed their stealth role. Now the whole place is, is on high alert, right? No, you split it up and you say, Hey, we've got a clock. It's four segments. And every time you fail a role or make some really loud noise, we fill in a box. And once the box is full, then the guards are alerted, right? I mean, it's very easy. It makes it so that stealth missions are not a uh, pass-fail alert the whole thing. You could have separate clocks for, you know, the perimeter guard or the interior guard or whatever. Um, that is a very easy way to handle things. Um, you could also have progressing danger. So danger clocks, maybe there's some type of a... Uh, ritual that's being performed right and every turn or every you know kind of round that the enemies get to perform this ritual it fills up segments on the clock and if they fill it up then you know enemies spawn 
or uh, something happens and maybe, you know, it spawns some demons and then another clock gets set up. And then when that one gets filled, it summons a huge demon. And then when that one, and then it puts another clock down. And then when that one gets filled up, then, you know, the demon god arrives, right, is summoned. So you can have kind of these progressing dangers that come, come into play. Another clock type is racing clocks. So you could have a um, progress clock for your players that's called escape. And you could have, you know, like the police or whatever, have a clock called cornered or something. And if the PCs don't finish their clock, uh, or if they fill their clock first, then they escape. If the uh, police fill up their clock first, then uh, they have them cornered and, and captured. Uh, if they get them uh, filled up at the same time, then um, they get where they're planning to go, but the police are outside or whatever. This is one of those situations where players or enemies could interfere with the other players' clocks. To, the police could do something to try to stop or remove progress from the players' clocks. The players could do something to try to trip up and ditch the police and and somehow interfere with their clock as it fills up. There's an example here for linked clocks. So this might be, uh, let's say you have a veteran warrior. She's got a defense clock and then a linked clock for vulnerable. And so once you overcome the defense clock, then you can attempt to complete the vulnerable clock to defeat her. Um, but if the, you know, as soon as the defense clock gets kind of cleared a little bit, then you're no longer, she's no longer vulnerable. So you got to work on the, the clocks. You're kind of linked together in a way where you have to work on one before you can work on the other one. Um, there's also mission clocks. So you could set up a clock to, to um, you know, if you have like a time sensitive mission or a window of opportunity to complete something, um, or target is trying to escape or something like that, right? You can set up clocks to track some of those things. You can have tug of war clocks um, where a clock can be filled and empty kind of back and forth. And you might have a kind of situation that'll happen if it's completely empty and a situation that'll happen if it's completely full. So now you have that tug of war where you're trying to either prevent one side from happening. You can also use clocks for long-term crafting projects. Let's say you are trying to create a magical device or research a new spell or something like that, right? The DM can say, okay, it's this complicated, so it's going to be uh, this many segment clock. So the player draws their clock, and then every time when they get downtime and they get a chance to work on those things, you know, they make a roll or two, and then they get to mark off a couple segments on the box when the box is done. They completed the thing. They get the new spell, they crafted a magic item, whatever it is. And last but not least, you can also have faction clocks. So this is good a good way to kind of make the world feel a little bit more alive. Maybe you have multiple factions that are all kind of acting on different things. Uh, the Lich is trying to, you know, take over small villages and raise an undead army. So he's got a clock and the... Uh, orc warlord is recruiting soldiers and he's got a clock and you know during downtime in between missions uh, if the players didn't didn't do anything uh, regarding these factions and maybe they just tick up by one or something and then once they fill up then you know something happens right the lich uh, all of the villages in this area are now completely captured and turned into you know undead 
uh, minions, and now they're starting to seep out and attack, you know, further out settlements, or more and more recruits are going to fill up the orcs, uh, this orc warlord's war band, uh, just different things like that, right? And just tick these boxes at the end of each session, um, and then here again, players can kind of slowly watch these clocks ticking up and know, like, gosh, we really got to do something about this lich. You know, we've been busy doing this side quest quest to get this magic sword, but that lich army is growing and we're going to have to deal with it. So it's just a way to build tension and to have kind of set intervals as to when uh, things happen. So that is clocks. In a nutshell, probably one of the most stealable mechanics for any game because it's not necessarily directly tied to the mechanics of this game, which means that you can basically just pick it up and plop it down in whatever system you're using, start using clocks. They're great. I'm going to do a quick chat about harm uh, because Blades in the Dark tracks damage a little bit more narratively than other games. So you have um, a couple levels of harm. So as some examples, you have kind of a level one harm, which is lesser. So like battered, drained, distracted, confused. Uh, level two is moderate. So exhausted, deep cut, concussion, panicked. Um, level three is severe, impaled, broken leg, shot in the chest, badly burned. And number four is fatal. You don't want that electrocuted, drowned, stabbed in the heart, right? So these are all different kind of narrative um, examples of the harm. And so on your harm tracker, uh, you basically have a little uh, table and you can take two level one harms. And if you have those, you have reduced effects. So whenever you try to do something and it's directly kind of impacted by one of those conditions, one of those harmed uh, levels of harm, then your effect level from your roll comes down. If you have uh, a level two harm, then you actually have to subtract one dice from your rolls that are related to that. And then uh, level three, um, like shattered right leg, you need help. Uh, it's bad, you're getting close to being uh, killed, so not good. And so the way that harm works is um, depending on kind of the effect level and things like that, the GM will tell you, like, you're going to take a level two harm, right? And then if you don't resist that and reduce that level, if that's what you take, let's say you take a level two harm, uh, you just write it in. Uh, when you take it, you write it in uh, in that space, on that table. Now, what happens when you take m multiple levels of harm um, and you have boxes filled is that they they get worse. So let's say you have you took two level one harms. In the example they have online, they have drained and battered. Now, if you were to take another tier one harm, since you don't have any more tier one harm slots to put it in, it automatically gets upgraded to a level two so uh, maybe you were gonna take uh, you know bruised uh, as a level one but you don't have any more now you're going to level two so now it's you know a deep cut or something right uh, so they upgrade if you if you fill them up and then you have ways of uh, taking them off and healing them and reducing them so your shattered right leg 
might just go to you know a wounded leg after you've spent time healing it right so it goes down to a level two um, so you don't necessarily like heal them all immediately you know your level one uh, harm is a little bit easier to get rid of than your higher level ones um, so that's kind of how harm works it's much more narrative than you know just straight up doing uh, HP or hit points or something um, and you don't necessarily roll dice or anything to determine what the harm level is. Uh, it gets determined by the DM and other factors, and then you can try to resist it to reduce the level that you're taking, that sort of thing. So uh, just it's just different. It's very different than a lot of games, so I thought I would throw that in there. Um, probably not something that you would port over to like a D&D game, uh, though you could if you wanted to, if your players were on board. Uh, but it's just a very different style of... Uh, health tracking. And the last thing I want to talk about is called fortune rolls. So fortune rolls were a little bit weird the first time I read them, but it's essentially like an oracle or rolling on a table. So when you need to make a decision about a situation, and maybe it's something that the players aren't necessarily involved in, but you don't want to just decide it, right? Like, you're not sure exactly if a thing is true or not. You can decide to uh, do a fortune roll to determine what that is. Um, so in the example that they give, there's two rival gangs that are fighting. How does that turn out? You know, the players aren't directly controlling anybody. As a DM, how do you decide who, who wins? Uh, you can do a fortune roll. So in this scenario, you could do a fortune roll for each gang and then kind of determine the outcome kind of as a like a versus type roll. Um, and you can also do a fortune roll when you just have an outcome that's uncertain, but you don't have any other role that applies um, to the situation. So when you make a fortune roll, you can assess any trait rating to determine the dice pool for the roll. So... When you're talking about factions and Blades in the Dark, they have a tier rating, so you could use that. Certain things have quality ratings or magnitudes, or you could just take into account the number of uh, various you know, kind of narrative things that make sense. So if they have like three narrative things that would help them out, uh, give them a rating of three, right? So you can use this for a bunch of different things, um, like if the players gather information, you might make a fortune roll using their action rating to determine how much information they get. Um, you could use it to determine if, you know, maybe the players ask if there's a certain type of building in a town, like a blacksmith or something, right? And you could grab a couple of different facts about the town, like maybe it's uh, it's a mining town and it's kind of a medium-sized town. Okay, that's two two things. Let's say it's a uh, rating of two, we'll roll on it, and we'll see what it is, right? And then you roll it just like you would roll a, uh, like an action roll, right? You roll your dice pool, and then you still get uh, kind of that same result set, right? One to three is either bad result or poor, little effect. Um, four to five is a mixed result, or there's, you know, limited or partial uh, result. And then six is good result, it's full full effect everything um and criticals too so like in that instance of trying to find like a blacksmith um 
let's say you roll like a four to five, you could say, yes, there was a blacksmith here, uh, but the building got burned down in like a recent raid or something, right? So you can, you can kind of use them as like oracles or tables to, um, it's not, it's, it's like, it's kind of like having a random table to give yourself a random outcome, but it's still based on some factor, some narrative factors or stats or whatever, whatever your game has. Um, and it's not like a specific table that you write out in advance where you're like, here's a couple of things that I think I could roll on, right? It's just like, I need a, I need like a yes, maybe, no uh, answer and I'm going to use some stats to influence that a little bit. That's what fortune rolls are. Um, you can use them for just about anything. Uh, you, technically, you could play the entirety of Blades in the Dark with just a fortune roll and not using the action roll. The action roll gives you some more stuff to go off of, a little bit more meat. Um, but yeah, fortune rolls, I like it. It's uh, Like I said, it, when I first looked at it, it didn't quite make sense to me. But now when I think of it more as like a, I just need to have an answer to a question um, I think it's a great way to improvise when you yourself as a DM don't necessarily know information. You could even use this type of role to do, uh, like, what is your what does this character do? Like, I'm not sure how this character would ask uh, would act in this situation. Let's let's roll for it um, and see how they respond. Right. So there's a lot of different things you could do with this. Um, you could even uh, port this over to like a D20 system as well. If you wanted to steal this for like D&D and you wanted to roll the D20, um, you could do kind of the same thing and set up your ranges as like, you know, if it's less than 10, it's a, the fail. If it's like 11 to, I don't know, 15, 16, that's your partial success and 18 plus is, uh, you know, your your full success. I don't know exactly what the like probabilities map to and from, you know, Blades in the Dark to... Uh, uh, d20 system it doesn't work out perfectly because the dice pool has different um, probabilities than just a flat d20 but uh, you, you could kind of make some um, you could make a little table for a d20 system that would get you close for probability wise so that is fortune rolls very good for just improvising stuff uh, and i hope you guys enjoy i hope there's some things here um in the Blades in the Dark Mechanics to Steal episode that you will steal. Uh, if there's anything I missed in this episode, or there are certain things that you've maybe played Blades in the Dark, um, let me know in the comments on either the video or Twitter or the Discord uh, as to things that you have taken from Blades in the Dark or that you think are cool. Um, and also tell me which systems you want me to look at next for future Mechanics to Steal videos, because I really like reading through RPG books, and I really like figuring out all of the things that I can take and pull back to my home games. Uh, so give me suggestions, and maybe we'll see another Mechanics to Steal video out with a system that you want to hear about. So with that, that is the end of this episode, and I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or join us in our Discord server.